The views, opinions, and content of the show hosts and their guests appearing on America's Web Radio are their own and do not necessarily reflect those of the station. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome to America's Web Radio. This is Ron Bachman, and you're listening to Healthcare Insight. Today, I want to take a look at the political scene as developing for the 2024 presidential election. It's hard to imagine, but we've already started into that cycle two years in advance of the election or just short of two years in advance of the election. But even more importantly for our listeners out there, if you need to be reminded, it's less than a year away from the primaries that will start uh, the process to the ultimate election in November of 2024. So we are not that far away from having to consider the politics that are developing, the environment that's developing. And we already have an announced candidate. In fact, we have announced two candidates. The first candidate, of course, is uh, Donald Trump, who announced back in November that he was going to be running in 2024 for the presidency for a second term. But in the last couple of weeks, we also have a second Republican candidate that's announced running for president. And that's South Carolina Governor uh, Nikki Haley. She was governor for uh, a couple of terms, and she actually worked in the Trump administration as ambassador to the U.N. She's got some very strong opinions, and people who have followed politics, uh, I can see people thinking on two different wavelengths. One wavelength is that she's a minority, a female. She's a first-generation of immigrants. She's got a lot of the characteristics and qualities that many people are looking for to be sure we've got sort of a diverse um, set of opinions and thoughts and ideas. And she's very conservative, which makes all those characteristics a little bit um, unique. On the other hand, a lot of people have looked at the career of Nikki Haley and said, well, she's been kind of all over the board. She's talked about being conservative at times and other times. She's uh, really what some would call a neocon, that she's uh, been in, more in favor of foreign wars and in get engagements and entanglements than many other uh, candidates uh, like Trump, who has been very anti-war and has pulled us out of conflicts around the world at times. But she has been very strong with many of the third world countries at the U.N. who really don't like the United States. And so I think what we're going to find out with Nikki Haley's uh, candidacy is who is she really? Because most people in the country don't know. You have to be sort of a political junkie uh, to really even probably know her name. South Carolina is a small state. It's down the south. Most people don't pay a lot of attention to the southern part of the country anyway. If you're from uh, the New England area, New York, California, they don't know who is who around the rest of the country in these smaller conservative states. So I think she had a very successful run as governor of of South Carolina. And so I want to focus this hour that we're going to spend together here on looking at uh, females in politics running at national levels or for major national uh, positions, whether it's presidency or maybe even the Senate. Um, and then the second thing I'd like to do is focus in specifically on Nikki Haley and give a little bit of a profile and understanding of who she is. Give her a little bit of a platform of things that she's talked about that she's in favor of. So those of you out there who are interested in women in politics or the prospect of a person with all the background and history and 
and demographics, if you will, of uh, Nikki Haley, uh, if you want to find out a little bit more about her. Even if you don't think that maybe she's proven herself enough or been in enough positions to run and be president of the United States, after you listen to some of her comments, you may have a little different twist on that. But if nothing else, she may be a very good vice presidential candidate with the presidency down the road after she gets a little bit more um, uh, experience and time in a vice presidential position. And some would say people who run like she does where she's not really well known would probably say, yeah, well, she's running for national recognition and maybe a ticket uh, as the vice president. But I think she is serious about thinking she could do a much better job, bring a conservative voice, be a little bit more of a moderate voice, if you will, a non-confrontational selection, a new generation of Republican candidates for the presidency. So let me start off with having some interviewing questions, then I'll comment on some of her thoughts as we go along the way. But the first question I think I would ask uh, Nikki Haley, Governor Nikki Haley, is how do you think you stand out? Why are you different as you're running for president of the United States? You know, I've never been in Washington, and I think that's so much of the problem in this country. We have so many Washington insiders trying to tell American the American people what to think and what to feel. You saw here what Americans think and feel. What they know is they're worried about the fact that they can no longer afford their groceries. They're worried about the fact that their children are so far behind in school they don't know how to catch them up. They're worried about the fact that, you know, you've got an open border and crime on their streets and you shouldn't have to worry about your child riding their bike down the street. They're worried about the fact that we looked up at the sky and saw a Chinese spy balloon. You can't make this up. And Americans have been through a lot. They've been through a lot with COVID and with everything else. They want someone to listen. And they're tired of the status quo. And they want a new generation. They want a fighter. They want someone who gets them. And I get that. Well, Governor Haley, you mentioned a new generation. And I can see that being the theme for many of the candidates who especially are running against um, Donald Trump, who in his late 70s would be in his 80s. And we've seen what's happened in the kind of um, lack of focus and attention and energy we see from President Biden. If he runs, I think he's going to be 82. So the Democrats would like to have somebody of a younger generation, but nobody really has jumped forward there. Um, the Republicans have a chance, a lot of younger people, yourself and many others. So tell us what you mean and what the interest is and the value of talking about a new generation of Republican leadership. I have, from the time I was governor, fought for term limits. I believe it's hugely important. We have to have them in government. Elected officials should come, do their job, and leave and let fresh blood come in. That hasn't happened. And so we have to have term limits in Congress. But more than that, look at who we're up against. Joe Biden has been in D.C. 50 years. He's out of touch. He has no concept of what my daughter's going through where she just got out of college. She's getting married and they want to know if they can afford a home. They have no clue about my son who's in college and has to worry about what the professor thinks if he's going to get an A. They don't worry about the fact that I'm the wife of a combat veteran. And you see all of our enemies like spiraling around us. And you think about your military spouse and say, is this the time he's going to have to go? They're not listening. And so what I am saying is we need new energy. We need new blood, but we need fresh eyes coming in, not Washington people. We've had enough of that. It's time for something new, It's but it's time for a leader. 
Governor Haley, um, that message actually resonated uh, two decades ago um, when Bill Clinton ran. Uh, he he argued that we needed a new generation of leaders, and he kind of came out of a small state, Arkansas, governorship, and he presented a kind of energy and influence with younger voters that really resonated, that pushed him into the office over what was a very popular uh, George Bush presidency until the very end. I mean, he was in the 90% approval rate with um, uh, the war against Iraq until that kind of turned on him, but uh, or Kuwait. Uh, so that that's an interesting message that um, I think many people are going to take to the campaign, but you're out there first. You're out there making it clear. You're making the statement. You're articulate with it. Well, let's talk about a presidency, uh, President Haley. What do you think is the biggest crisis that we have to face today, besides our leadership being too old? What's the biggest crisis as you see it? The biggest crisis I see is the national self-loathing that has taken over our country. I mean, the media has really gotten to where they've told Americans our country is bad, our country is racist, our country is rotten to the core. And that's just not true. Our country is the best in the world. And we are blessed. And we don't need our kids sitting there thinking they live in a bad place. I have been all over this world. And I can tell you, and I have always said, even on our worst day, we are blessed to live in America. But it is time for everybody to come together and fight for her. Because we need to know that, no, America's not perfect. But the the principles at the heart of America are perfect. And that's what we have to get back to. Well, Governor, I think back to previous elections as you're making your your discussion and presentation there about the crisis of uh, self-confidence and uh, appreciation of the country that we live in. I think about... Back when Jimmy Carter was uh, was running against Ronald Reagan and Jimmy Carter gave his malaise speech, which, of course, didn't even include the, the word malaise. That was sort of a, a media characterization of it, but it kind of stuck. Uh, I think what I'm hearing you say, and I actually agree with it, the country is in a kind of malaise now, That, but it's even worse than that. It's in this self-hatred. It's in this critical mode that nothing about this country is right. We were founded on racism. We've continued to be racism uh, oriented, we uh, have a, uh, a white population that are all uh, white supremacists uh, uh, characterized as we're KKK. We've got the police killing people randomly uh, because they're black. Uh, it just makes no sense, but there's a narrative out there that is is really, really horrible. But again, let's turn the page a little bit, and I want to get your thoughts on as re- running as a Republican candidate for the presidency, uh, a core constituency of the Republican are the evangelical uh, Christians. They want to be sure that the president has the strong faith, that they are pro-life, and there's a number of other um, religious issues that, that uh, they want to know about. So what 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 is the pitch that you're going to make uh, to that segment of the Republican Party? So the first thing I'll tell you, there's no pitch. It is, I am who I say I am. I am a mom who is blessed because my husband was adopted and I live with that every day. I had trouble having my children. I know how precious life is. I'm the daughter of Indian immigrants who told us every day that the best way to appreciate God's blessings is to give back. You know, I am the wife of a combat veteran and I know what it's like when you send your husband off and you don't know if he's going to come back. And I, every day I have had to 
focus on how do we make today better than yesterday, and you can't do it without faith. And that was tested when we had the Mother Emanuel shooting. It was tested in a way like I've never had it tested. And at my lowest low, I remember trying to wrap my arms around the state and protect her from chaos and riots, but comfort these families that had just lost so much. And I remember saying, God, I can't do this by myself. And he was there. And so I am a person that every day walks with my faith on my shoulders and knows that I can't get through a day without God. And so I don't need to pitch anyone. I think they see it. I think they feel it. I think they know who I am. And I think at the end of the day, Americans are like that. America's not rotten. America's blessed. We've got good people who have faith, who understand it's going to take all of us. It's going to take all of us to get back to the strength that we had as Americans. Well, many of you out there in our audience may be hearing Nikki Haley for the first time talk about her ideas, her thoughts, and giving a little bit of a perspective of how she might govern as a presidential candidate um, that's victorious in uh, November of 2024. So if you like this and you want to hear more, stay with us. We're going to take a quick commercial break, and I want to come back and get into more of who and what and why Nikki Haley is the best candidate, or at least a very viable candidate for presidency of the United States. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. If you want the truth about politics, medicine, weapons, classic cars, and more, you'll want to tune in to America's Web Radio. You can listen to all of your favorite shows live at www.americaswebradio.com or on demand on iTunes, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. That's www.americaswebradio.com. I am back! Let's talk Venezuelan with Josie Cruz and friends. Every Wednesday morning at 9 a.m. only on America's Web Radio. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to America's Web Radio. Today, we are focusing on profiling women in politics, especially at the national level, but focusing in right now, more specifically, on Governor Nikki Haley, Governor of South Carolina, a number of years ago. She's also held a position more recently in the Trump administration as ambassador to the United Nations. Now, I want to continue with this idea of what her faith is and how her faith may guide her. And also, many of our audience may not know that she is from the country of India. Her parents were uh, uh, Indians. They came over here, and she is a first-generation America. She was born in the United States. Her heritage and her her roots go back to uh, the country of India. And as a result, when she came over as a child or was born here after uh, her parents emigrated here, um, her parents are of the Sikh faith, which is not a Christian faith. And yet she is a 
a woman of Christian faith. So uh, I want to ask the governor, uh, tell us about how that transition worked. How did you go from being a child under the parents' faith of being a Sikh to being a Christian? It must be a very interesting story of that conversion and how your parents actually uh, took it as you went on your own faith journey as a young person. So, you know, it's interesting. When I was growing up in that small rural town, my parents would take us to different churches all the time, a Catholic church, a Methodist church, a Baptist church, and they would bring us home and say, we want you to see this is everybody has their way to God. And what's most important is that you find your path to God and that you understand that that is who you are and what you need in your life. And so for them, it wasn't an issue of them not handling it well. What happened is growing up in the Sikh faith, I would go to the temple and you could feel the spirit of everybody around, but I couldn't understand it. I didn't speak the language. I couldn't understand it. I knew the importance of God. Our parents would teach us about it every day. Like you have to, you know, live a life of God. You got to live a life of service, all of those things. And so then when I started going to church with Michael, I didn't just feel it. I heard it. And when you hear that and you hear how blessed and you hear all of the things that suddenly you craved for, that's what did it. And so it was easy for me to convert because I had been looking for it for so long. And when I found it, I just knew. Well, Governor, let's talk about probably the biggest social issue of the uh, midterms, and that was the Dobbs decision. You know, it really isn't settled except that the Supreme Court now has thrown it back to the states. That's been settled, that the um, the right to a national abortion, uh, which was always on very shaky ground. Even Ruth Bader Ginsburg uh, said that when it was originally passed, that the legal uh, grounds on it were pretty shaky, and it was likely to ultimately be uh, reversed, and it was. So now it goes back to the states. So it's going to be a hot topic. The Democrats have um, have have uh, taken it over, if you will, at the state level, and they benefit from it. They've capitalized on that. So how do you uh, intend to address that issue so that I know you're pro-life, but how do you address it on the political front where the Democrats have kind of capitalized on the uh, pro-choice aspects of the Dobbs going back to the state. So there's now a fight state by state by state, and you're going to have to respond as to what each state that you campaign in, uh, what their law, laws are, and how do you maintain the credibility of your position and stop the Democrats from capitalizing on it like they did in the midterms? Well, Democrats shouldn't capitalize it anymore, and we've got to take care of that. We should never be afraid to talk about what we think on the pro-life issue. I'm pro-life not because Republican Party tells me to be. I'm pro-life from my experiences, from having my husband adopted, from having trouble having my children. So it's personal for me. But guess what? It's personal for everyone, not just women. It's personal for men, too. And we have to treat it like that. We didn't want unelected justices deciding something this personal. We wanted it decided with the people. And so now I think it's back in the hands of the people. We can now do it through elected officials. What we have to understand is I don't judge someone if they are pro-choice, but I don't want them judging me for being pro-life. What we do need to do is be able to have this conversation. And my number one goal is we should save as many babies as we can 
and support as many moms as we can. And we should do it with love and we should do it in a way that we can have that conversation. Now they can have the debate on whether that means 15 weeks or, or 10 weeks or six weeks, but let's, see, let's at least start with the fact that we don't think that abortions up until the time of birth is acceptable. And let's accept the fact that we do want to save as many babies as possible and then go from there. Well, Governor, we have on both sides, voters on both sides of this issue are very passionate, very animated. Uh, they'll take extreme positions, uh, both pro-choice and pro-life, on how they're going to protect their points of view. So how important is this issue for you as a part of your campaign? I think it's important to me because I think it's important to Americans. This issue isn't going to go away based on a president. This issue is going to affect every family. And so what we have to do is we have to be very loving in the way we do this, but we also have to figure out that we've got to figure this out. So let's do it. And so, you know, if the federal government decides to do it, if the states decide to do it, our goal should be to save as many babies as we can and come to a consensus on what that looks like. Governor, let me get your opinion and ideas on another very hot social topic issue, and that is around what some would call a cultural war, a spiritual warfare that's going on with what's happening with our our children in schools, that they're being taught critical race theory, they're being taught about gender identity, they're being uh, they're being indoctrinated, many would say, and not educated. So, what are your thoughts and feelings about whether or not we've got sort of a spiritual warfare that's actually going on in this country, and we need leadership that will help to uh, fight that? Uh, defeat it, at least reverse it, and uh, give us your give us your opinions on that spiritual warfare that many say is going on. It absolutely is spiritual warfare because you are trying to take parenting away from parents, and you're trying to give it to other people. We can't have that happen. And you know, it was very interesting when when Florida passed the "Don't Say Gay" bill. You know, it was basically you can't talk about gender up until the time of third grade. I didn't think that went strong enough. I mean, when I was growing up, you didn't have sex ed until seventh grade, and your parents had to sign, and my dad wouldn't sign. I was the kid in the back room that couldn't go because my parents were like, no, you're not going to do this yet. The, this is about parents and their children. This is not about school bureaucrats. This is not about people in D.C. This is about parents and children and their church. And all of those issues need to be decided at home. They don't need to be talked about in schools. They don't need to be spread here. I mean, all of this wokeism is trying to change the core of what the family is. The family has always been one that prays at home, goes to church, teaches morals, grows their children, and sends them out to do God's work. That's always been the case until now. And now they're going to have the nerve to say that parents don't know how to raise their children. That's unacceptable. Parents do know how to raise their children. They do know what school they should go into and should be able to decide that for themselves. They do know when their children need to be talked to about genders. They do know how to handle their children. And we need to let parents do their job. Okay, Governor, let me ask you the Trump question. Many of our listeners out there may be uh, Trump supporters uh, may still consider him to be the front runner. He certainly shows up very strong in uh, polling that goes on among the Republican Party and certainly the conservative wing of the Republican Party. And it's part of what you're going to need to um, 
uh, latch onto and take some of those votes away if you're going to be successful in a primary. So you originally said that you would not run if he's running. Well, he's running, but now you're running. So maybe you can help our audience understand uh, why you changed your mind. It seemed as though many Trump followers would say originally you were kind of loyal to him. You served his administration. You were certainly at times also very critical of him before the election, but then you went to work in his administration. And I think you got to see some of the, uh, the very strong policies that he was implementing and that were very consistent with what you wanted to do and say at the United Nations to these other countries around the world that tend not to appreciate or like or even support many of the policies of the United States. They just want our money. So tell me how that changed for you saying you weren't going to run if he's running and now you're you're actually um, uh, running against him. Of course. So when I first said I wouldn't run against President Trump, Biden had just been elected. And since then, I've watched Afghanistan fall and us lose 13 American soldiers. I've sat there and watched all of this chaos happen in our schools and what's happening to our children. I've watched inflation go through the roof. And then I saw us lose the midterms. We have lost the last seven out of eight popular votes for president. Republicans are doing something wrong. We have to accept that. There's no reason we don't win a majority of Americans. Our issues and solutions are the right ones. We focus on lifting up everybody, not just certain people. But we have to know how to talk about it. This is a story of addition. We need to bring people into the fold. We need people to join us as we go and try and save America from socialism and defeatism. And we need to do it together. And so, one, I think it's time for a new generation. I think it's time for someone who can speak that in a way that we bring more people in. And I think it's time that we focus on the fact that we can't keep talking about old issues and the status quo. We've got to look forward. We've got to get back to where we're a country that loves America. I had a conversation with President Trump. He is a friend. I thought that he was the right president at the right time. He broke all the right things and kind of built them back up. And I will always be happy that I was a part of that. But we have to go in a different direction. It is time for a new generation. And I told him that. And we had a great conversation. And um, everything went, you know, it was it was like we always have. But he knows that I have always said the truth. I said it to him in the administration. I say it now. And and it's time. And But we had a great conversation. Well, Governor, we're already aware of the Trump administration and his team doing some op-ed on you and your background to sort of come out and, and hit at you. How are you going to handle the kind of pressure and the kind of campaign that this might become, maybe sometimes a little bit dirty or nasty at least? I am running against Joe Biden. I don't kick to the side. I kick forward. Joe Biden is the biggest problem we have in this country. And Joe Biden's where we need to keep our eye on the ball. That's what I'm going to do. They can say whatever they want. It rolls off of me um, with no issues. Because at the end of the day, the American people don't want that. They want someone who is listening and fighting for their issues and telling Joe Biden, you have a spending addiction and you have sent us into inflation. We have supply chain problems and we should be building these things at home and our Americans should be working in these jobs. We have to close our border and our streets need to be safe. And we've got to stop these spy balloons and all of these threats that are coming in from around the world. And we have to have a strong military because a strong military prevents wars. It doesn't start wars. But we've got to start getting our eye on the ball and focus. We look so distracted right now. Well, listeners, you're hearing some very strong 
opinions and thoughts and ideas from a woman who has a lot of experience that may very well uh, be successful in the Republican primary for president in 2024. If you want to hear more about her, and I think it's fascinating to listen to what she has to say, uh, join us at the next segment after we hear this short commercial break. If you love classic cars, you're going to want to listen to The Classic Car Show with Tom Cox and Richard Lentinello on America's Web Radio. Live every Saturday at 9 a.m. Eastern at americaswebradio.com or on demand on your favorite podcast app. Veteran-owned, America's Web Radio would like to thank all of our incredible patrons. We wouldn't be able to do this without you. If you are not already a patron, you can help us continue to produce some of the most informative and entertaining shows on the Internet by becoming a patron. Patrons of America's Web Radio are the first to receive information about new shows and links to the latest podcast episodes. Join now and receive a free gift while supplies last. For more information and to join our family, please visit www.patreon.com slash America's Web Radio. If you have questions, contact us at gm at americaswebradio.com. And as always, thank you for listening. In 2009, the membership organization Docs for Patient Care was founded. People all around the country wanted to participate in the efforts of this group, and they wanted to join, but they were unable to do so unless they were physicians. It's for this reason that the Docs for Patient Care Foundation was created. Now, everyone can join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients, dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. While you're at your computer, please go to www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's www.docs4patientcarefoundation.org and make a tax-deductible donation and join the fight along with us. Thank you. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to this third segment of America's Web Radio, and today we are focusing on Governor Nikki Haley, as she has recently announced her run for presidency of the United States in 2024. You know, there's a lot of different parts to the Republican Party, and it is really in transition. Uh, President Trump clearly changed the uh, direction of the Republican Party to a more populist, a more America first approach uh, to policy making and the direction of this country. And there are many people who see Nikki Haley as part of a, a different wing of the Republican Party. Some might even say that she's sort of hawkish and that's in many ways uh, anti-magocrat, if you will, that she's going to have to uh, bring into her tent if she wants to have any success in this uh, primary campaign. Uh, there's not necessarily a difference as I see it in some of these. You have to be strong uh, in foreign policy, and sometimes you have to take action. And knowing where that line is for a president to take action uh, against uh, foreign powers that may be trying to crush somebody like in Ukraine or what happened in uh, Iran or, or Kuwait, any of those countries that we've been involved in. Afghanistan was a total disaster where we went in there for 16 years and nobody seemed to know or understand that that was not to the benefit of the United States. So I want to ask um, uh, Governor um, Haley, 
that how do you draw that line? How do you make that distinction between being hawkish, as some would describe it, on foreign policy and getting our nose under the tent, sometimes the whole neck of the camel under the tent uh, that might engage us in a more uh, widespread, a more devastating war versus America first and bringing it home and having the other countries uh, pick up for their own defense where they need to and make a stand. And it's not always just the United States uh, stepping in. So how do you create a balance between those different images that some people might have or just clarify for our audience uh, what your positions are in these areas? This is Americans just want to know that we are going to focus on America first. We absolutely should. When I was at the United Nations, you know, and, and President Trump would say America first, other countries would come to me and say, well, what else do they want you to have first? Why wouldn't it be America first? Because it's France first. It's Russia first. They all do that. We need to, if we don't take care of our home base, we can't take care of anything else. And so that needs to be the focus. It's one of the reasons when we, um, were moving the embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem and, and we got all that hate at the UN. When I left after that vote, I went back to my office and I said, I want you to do a book. I want you to list all 193 countries. I want the second column to be the percentage of times they voted with America and against America. And I want the third column to be the amount of foreign aid we give them. I took that book and I gave it to President Trump. And I said, we can no longer buy friends. You will never win them. Stop giving money to people who say death to America, death to Israel. Let's start finding who's our partner, our real partner. And so what you have to do is we need to step back and understand you don't need to buy a bunch of friends. You need a strong military to prevent wars. But you know what? We have the backs of our friends and we hold our enemies to account. And, you know, whether it's Ukraine or Israel... We take care of them because it's about freedom, and we can never stop fighting for freedom. Well, Governor, there's a growing consensus, or at least a strong movement going on in the Republican Party, to say this gravy train of just sending billions and billions, tens if not hundreds of billions of dollars over to Ukraine has got to stop. Um, I can see that in the primary there's going to be the two dramatically different sides. Let's just pull out, let them handle it themselves, let the Europeans deal with it. Uh, we'll supply uh, some supplies, but we can't have an open checkbook as it seems to be the case right now. There's no end in sight, and it seems to just escalate and escalate. So I think this is going to be a major question that maybe differentiates candidates uh, in the primary. So can you tell us um, what your feelings are about whether we should stop or at least slow down dramatically what's going on in Ukraine or should we take another approach and stand with them as we have been, have an open checkbook, see where we're going? Give give us your perspective on Ukraine in particular as an example of foreign policy. Biden was slow to the take. Yeah. He should have given Ukraine what they needed right when this started, and we'd be in a totally different place right now. This isn't a war about Ukraine. This is a war about freedom. And I don't think we need to put troops on the ground. I don't think we need to write them blank checks. But they have the passion to fight for their own freedom. Give them the ammunition to do it. Get with our NATO allies and say, hey, we're not the only ones. You've got to do it, too. And let them win this fight. But I'll tell you what, if they win this fight, 
you won't hear anything from Russia, China, or Iran. If they lose this fight, Russia's not going to stop at Ukraine. They're going to go into Poland and the Baltics, and we've got a world war on our hands. We have to make sure we send a message to every enemy that if you mess with our friends, you're messing with us, and you don't want to do that. Well, Governor, there's still a lot of people in the Republican Party that sort of fit that stereotype of the country club Republicans that are into uh, globalists, the kind of George Bush uh, Republicans, uh, the World Economic Council, and the Davos crowd. What's your take on that? Because some people may uh, may categorize you as the, part of that crowd, and so I want to give you an opportunity to explain either yay or nay that uh, and what you feel about uh, that part of the Republican Party, if that's where people are uh, still today. I know you think that many have moved away from that. I'm trying to be sure that you don't uh, have those roots in your own thinking. It's a bunch of elitists. It's a bunch of elitists that have no idea what real Americans are going through, and they want to go and dictate to all of us how they think things should be. They think that everything needs to be green energy. They think that we need to focus on the climate. They think that we need to have everybody masked up and schools closed. They are completely out of touch. And I will tell you from someone at the United Nations, it was a complete farce. And I called it out every single time because at the end of the day, they wanted these big initiatives and they wanted America to do it. No, if you want the initiatives, you do it. We're going to do what we want to do. And I think we have to always remember that. You know, Governor, there's always going to be this debate about how big government should be, how little government should be, how much regulation we should have, how much should be eliminated uh, what's the role of the federal government in various parts of our lives? Uh, what does the Constitution say about what the role of the federal government should be and how restricted or how expansive it can be, depending upon how you interpret the uh, Constitution? So let's get right to the bottom line. What is your interpretation of what the role of the federal government should be? Under Joe Biden's America, the sure. role of the federal government has grown, and there's trillion-dollar bills constantly that are continuing to grow it. What we want the role of the federal government is to get out of the lives of Americans, get out of the lives of small businesses, and make sure they understand that government breaks more than it fixes. Let the private sector do. Let real Americans do. Let us be free to make decisions, to make our choices. Capitalism, economic freedom... It has lifted up more people out of poverty in the history of the world. We should never be ashamed to say that. And we need to go back to that and let parents be in control, let Americans be in control, and remember what it's like to be a free and proud American. Governor, I know that you think that uh, the Biden administration completely mishandled uh, the COVID issue and lockdowns and mask mandates and all those things when they came into office. And so I'm sure as that attack occurs, many are going to ask, what would you have done differently? How would you have handled the COVID crisis if you were president at the time? I would have handled that just like when I was governor and I was, had hurricanes and we had a thousand-year flood. I would go in front of South Carolinians every day. I would tell them what we knew, what we didn't know, and what we thought was the best situation going forward. And I stayed in touch with them every day and let them make decisions. I didn't tell them how to live. I gave them the information so that they could make the choices on how to live. That's not the role of government. 
government doesn't need to be all things to all people. Government was there to secure the rights and freedoms of the people. That's it. That's it. There's a lot of research now coming out with the long-term effects of some of these vaccines, and some of them have heart conditions that have created in certain categories. Uh, there are other issues that are coming out on the ramifications and long-term impacts of COVID um, vaccines. What's your position on the vaccine um, that was promoted so heavily by the Biden administration? I mean, they, they scared people into thinking they had to get a vaccine. They scared uh, people into thinking they had to close schools. They scared businesses into shutting down. And all they did was make our country more unhealthy because they didn't allow people to live. At the end of the day, if a small business wants to open, they should have the freedom to open. And if a customer wants to walk in that business, they should have the freedom to walk in there. If parents want their children to go to school, they should be able to send them. And the child shouldn't have to be in a mask to do that. Because guess what? Elementary school kids learn by facial expressions. And now you see all of these mental health challenges that we have for so many of our children. And it's because of all those experts that that claim that they knew best. And that should be a lesson to us to never let that happen. No, we talked a little bit uh, about your religion, your faith, and um, the prayer uh, for your uh, introduction, your announcement of running for president was by John Hagee. And he's a very influential evangelical. And so um, what was that like for you uh, to have him bless this announcement? And why did you choose him? Pastor John and Diana Hagee are treasures. They are true treasures. Michael and I traveled to Israel with them. He has developed this mass network of Christians United for Israel. He is loved in Israel. He's loved in America. And I went to him when I decided I was going to run. And I wanted him here to bless this day. And boy, did he bless it. So I guess really what you're doing by having... um, John Hagee, um, come and bless this announcement is that you believe strongly in the Judeo-Christian values that he represents from the evangelical part of the Republican Party. Is that, is that who you are? Is that the message you're trying to let people know as well as having an appropriate prayer and a blessing uh, for this campaign kickoff? And we don't need to go away from that. We need to dig deep. We need to pull into that. Absolutely, and that's why I wanted him to be here, because I knew he'd set the tone like nobody else. So, Governor, give us your elevator presentation so our audience can even maybe mimic or carry that message forward to their friends. What is the the main thing that you want to get across to people as to where we're going to go in this country and where you're going to lead us? I want Americans to know they deserve better. They deserve better than the life they have. Our kids deserve a future they can be proud of. We deserve a country that is strong and proud, and I need them to join me in this. This is a movement. This is a movement to right the ship. This is a movement to say we deserve better, but we're all going to be a part of this. And we need to all be united in doing that. That doesn't mean we compromise. That doesn't mean we take the weak way out. It means we're bold. We don't apologize for our love because we're going to do this. We're going to finish it, and we're going to end up doing this in a way that make all Americans proud. Well, audience, stay with us. If you've enjoyed this so far, you'll hear even more in our final segment on Nikki Haley, 
women in uh, running for national offices, some of the issues they need to face, and some of the unique obstacles that women have to overcome as they run for national audience. So we'll be right back after this commercial break. Hey, folks, this is Victor with the On Point with Victor show. Make sure you listen every Tuesday, 1 to 2, only right here on America's Web Radio, the On Point with Victor show. Remember, folks, I'm not angry. I'm just right. And you can find out why every Tuesday from 1 to 2, the On Point with Victor show, only right here on America's Web Radio. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to the final segment of Healthcare Insight. You're on America's Web Radio, and this is Ron Bachman as we wrap up this week's program. And we want to focus on Nikki Haley and women in politics. You know, it's less than a year away that we're going to be seeing people campaigning for the Iowa caucus. Now, caucuses are a little different animal than regular elections. Caucuses where people actually gather at a local high school or some other location, and they kind of move around the room based upon um, people who are voting, and the ones who don't get many votes or enough for the threshold, they drop off, and those people actually go to other corners of the room uh, for their second choice of candidates. And it goes on and on until they get down to um, an ultimate winner and um it's a very different but a very hands-on process uh, to do caucuses as opposed to just going into a voting booth and registering your vote for a given candidate. So uh, let's talk about Iowa as a start because many people who campaign in Iowa go on uh, to greater success and sometimes even to the presidency based upon um, uh, the results in Iowa. Uh, the best example that maybe many people forget about is Jimmy Carter uh, first – was the first real presidential candidate to go to Iowa, which at the time was a caucus, but was dismissed nationally because it wasn't a real election. Well, he went as an unknown candidate to um, Iowa, campaigned throughout the state when many other candidates dismissed it. He had what was called the peanut brigade that went up to Iowa and helped support him and gave him some of the logistical uh, support to get around to the state, to shake hands and to introduce him to Iowans who like that kind of a hands-on, personalized uh, retail ca- uh, campaigning, if you will, up there. So let's talk to a, um, a, a Professor Kelly Winfried, who um, uh, is an expert on uh, females in politics, and also uh, she's there in Iowa, so she knows how Iowa works and how candidates uh, can best relate to that retail politicking that Iowa demands and if you can do that in Iowa, it really sets the tone that you can uh, speak at debates, you can uh, stand on your own, you can gain the fundraising that you need to go on further. So many people think that Iowa is a perfect place to start a presidential campaign season. Now, others have criticized it, no doubt, that it is too white, too rural, and uh, doesn't really uh, reflect the diversity of the country. But for many people and many candidates, it has been a successful way to begin the political career 
of running for president of the United States because of the uniquenesses of Iowa. So, Professor, let's sort of start this process by, if you would, give us a little bit of a background on how women run differently in Iowa or maybe some of the strengths and weaknesses of campaigning in the state of Iowa as a kickoff to the presidential season. Well, we haven't had all that many opportunities. Um, on the Republican side, it's really uh, just been Carly Fiorina, uh, Michelle Bachman, and Elizabeth Dole. Uh, and they were all in uh, fields of, uh, you know, men, all white men. Um, and it, none of those candidates, uh, by the time that they were really campaigning in Iowa, were seen as likely victors. Um, a large, in large part because of fundraising before, you know, they really even got to the campaigning. Uh, but I think that one of the things that's nice about Iowa or can be helpful to candidates in Iowa, particularly women, is there's so much emphasis put on getting to know them as people, right? Iowa caucuses are about shaking hands and talking with folks about your experiences. Um, and what research shows us is that the more information people have about a candidate, the less likely they are to make gender stereotypes kind of the fill-in. Um, so it can be a way for women candidates to be known for who they really are and what issues they stand for as opposed to kind of assumptions based on their gender. So, Professor, what I'm hearing you say is that it actually could be a a positive for an unknown, whether it's a woman, woman or a man, uh, to get into that retail politics and show their personality and their authenticity, and that's what's ultimately going to make a difference. So the more people know about a candidate, the less likely their gender uh, makes a difference. Now, let's talk about, though, some practical hurdles that women do, in fact, uh, face when they're trying to campaign in Iowa. You know, I think it's it's the same in a lot of places. Um, you know, there are still a lot of assumptions about women's roles, right? Um, women are still expected to be nicer, to smile more. Uh, and if they're seen as too abrasive, they're not liked. Uh, so some of the, the research that I've looked at is how women candidates are often seen as either, you know, too masculine to be liked or too feminine to lead. So they really have to walk that narrow path of balancing both, you know, gender expectations and who they really are and demonstrating leadership abilities. Whereas male candidates, they don't really have to worry as much about being liked. Um, though I think, that's kind of part of the Iowa caucuses, but if a male candidate can be liked, that's a bonus, but if he doesn't have to be liked to be considered a good leader. Um, so that's kind of an extra challenge of women having to negotiate all these expectations um, that they have both as a political candidate and being a woman who is a political candidate. Well, Professor, I know that Iowa has a female governor and one of their two senators uh, Joni Ernst is also a female. So uh, females in executive decision-making positions is not new to Iowans. Is that change? How does that change the dynamics for what might uh, might occur for um, a female uh, candidate for presidency in the caucus voting in Iowa? Does Nikki Haley have a different situation maybe than might have been the case a number of years ago? Well, I think, you know, we're in a very different place now in Iowa than we were, you know, two or four years ago, um, both in terms of of having Kim Reynolds as our first female governor. Uh, you know, we elected Joni Ernst in 2014 as our first female U.S. senator. 
Uh, and we've had several women that we've sent to the U.S. House, uh, really all since 2014. So seeing women in, you know, executive leadership positions and federal leadership positions representing Iowa has become more standard. Um, so I think that there is, it, it, it's less jarring than maybe it was in, say, the 2012 race uh, when Michelle Bachman was running or even 2016 with Carly Fiorina. Um, because we're used to seeing that, right? We've had uh, Reynolds elected, um, you know, a- appointed uh, or taking over as lieutenant governor and then elected in her own right uh, twice now. So that's really, uh, I think, helped folks see the possibility of a woman in an executive leadership position. Um, and, you know, she's she's done well with her constituents. Um, you know, she won the last election, I think about by 18 points or so, pretty pretty strongly. Um, and that was a race with two women in it as well. So it's becoming less of a rarity. And I think the less rare it is, the less newsworthy it is in some ways, because, you know, voters aren't seeing this as a woman candidate. They're just seeing it as a, another candidate. Well, Professor, I know you've done some really good research on women in politics and the running of campaigns. Can you give us a little bit of insight or something more uh, recent uh, developments and uh, insights that you've had on women in uh, politics. Yeah, we actually, uh, my co-author and I uh, just had an article that's that's uh, about to be published uh, that looked at women since Sarah Palin and Clinton in 2008 uh, and some of the uh, media frames and conversation on social media about women. And they still face a lot of the same challenges that they have for, you know, decades um, in terms of being seen as unlikable. Uh, an unlikable woman is not electable. Um, there, we've also seen uh, more distrust towards women candidates. So uh, questioning their authenticity is usually how it's characterized. Uh, you know, are they really presenting themselves as they are? It's something that um, Kamala Harris uh, dealt with. It's something that Elizabeth Warren dealt with. Uh, we saw, you know, claims with Elizabeth Warren that she was really a Republican because, you know, decades earlier, she had been registered as a Republican um, and claims that she was lying about things that Bernie Sanders said to her. So women candidates have have run into a little bit more of that conversation of can we trust them? Um, and then there's the kind of the, the traditional stereotypes talking about uh, how they are as a wife or a mother or whether or not they're attractive. Uh, how they look, you know, is it, we don't talk much about what men are wearing, right? Or how their hair looks or how their fingernails look. Um, but that's still a common conversation, both in terms of um, kind of media coverage, as well as uh, the general conversation that takes place on social media about candidates. So it's just kind of an added layer that women candidates have to deal with um, that really distracts from their ability to focus on here are the issues I care about. Here's what I would do as a leader. Uh, and it has people thinking about unrelated stuff as they're considering who to vote for. Well, Professor, let's continue with that thought that you're saying too often women are distracted by non-policy issues, how they dress or how their hair is or anything like that, and distraction them being able to get across their message. Are there any particular issues that are more difficult for women or maybe less difficult for women because of their gender? How does that work? Yeah, what we've seen and um, how male and female candidates have navigated some of the gender expectations is uh, what some have called gender adaptiveness, which is the idea that 
both men and women kind of use stereotypical assumptions to their advantage and have to battle the ones that might disadvantage them. So, for example, for women candidates, uh, voters have historically considered them um, more qualified to talk about things like education or um, senior citizen issues, things related to their role as a caregiver or motherhood. Um, and so they have to work a little less hard to convince people they're able to handle those issues if they're a leader. Um, as opposed to thinking specifically about the presidency, um, military issues, national security, foreign affairs issues that are often seen as kind of masculine type of issues. Women have to really demonstrate uh, the ability to handle those situations, the expertise. Um, you know, I think Hillary Clinton was a good example of, you know, having been a secretary of state, uh, having a lot of policy knowledge to demonstrate that she could do that. Uh, whereas male candidates get a little bit more of a pass just based on their gender. Uh, so I would expect that you would see um, candidates like Nikki Haley uh, or any other women that might pop up trying to emphasize uh, their ability to handle those issues as well. Um, and, you know, uh, as um, Nikki Haley was working, you know, with the United Nations under Trump, so she has some part of her resume that can speak to that sort of skill set. I'd like to wrap up this uh, segment with uh, maybe a little bit of an off-the-wall question, but Professor, could you talk about uh, digital campaigning? Because I was such a hands-on, you know, everybody wants to meet the person and shake their hand and it's said, you know, uh, I won't vote for anybody if I haven't met them personally. How does digital campaigning work in the uh, in the Iowa caucus structure? Well, I think, you know, digital is part of your overall strategy. Um, it's it's a very important piece because that's how so many folks connect to each other, connect to events going on around them, um, and as a way to continuously engage with someone. But you still want to be having that face-to-face um, and as much kind of human interaction as possible. Uh, but what social media in particular allows you to do is to keep that engagement going. So now I've knocked on your door. Um, now you know about events that are popping up in your Facebook. You're seeing pictures of me campaigning, you know, me, if I were a candidate, me campaigning in Iowa. Um, and it all comes to be a, a big piece of a whole that demonstrates this is who the person is. This is what the candidate is like. This is what they're doing in Iowa. Um, and couples with that traditional ground game of knocking on doors and doing those kind of small diner events and things like that. Well, thank you, Professor, for some interesting insights to the Iowa caucus and the campaigns that are coming up in the last than a year. Audience, can you believe in less than a year? If you're a political junkie, you know that the buildup for all this is just waiting for those final days when we'll actually have some votes in, in Iowa, New Hampshire, and South Carolina, et cetera, et cetera. So stay in tune. Come back and listen to Healthcare Insights week after week because we're going to be following this campaign and building on these ideas of what kind of policy is going to change this country in a direction that many of us would like for it to be. So please join us again next week on America's Web Radio here at Healthcare Insight. The views, opinions, and content of the show hosts and their guests appearing on America's Web Radio are their own and do not necessarily reflect those of the station. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening.